During the Bible, many times the prophets would illustrate what they had to say, but not necessarily with words, sometimes with sort of interesting actions. And chapter 13 of Jeremiah is an illustrated sermon by Jeremiah to the people. The Lord told Jeremiah to go and uh, to get a linen girdle and put it on. Now, the word girdle is really sort of a word for a sash. The men wore robes in those days, and they would tie this sash around the robe to sort of hold things together. Now, as women often wear scarves with accenting colors, it sort of sets off the dress or whatever, so they would wear these fancy kind of sashes. It sort of set off your robe and everything. Your your final bit of garment was this sash, and it was the most noticeable part of of your apparel. And so, like guys wear a flashy tie or something, uh, they would wear these sashes. And uh, so he was told by the Lord to go get this linen sash. It was probably pretty flashy. Because the idea is he was to wear it through Jerusalem for a long period of time until everybody noticed it. And we're talking about, have you seen that sash that Jerry's wearing? But then the Lord told him an interesting thing. He said, don't wash it. So every day they saw it was getting dirtier and dirtier. And then the Lord said, now take that sash that you've been wearing to the river Euphrates and hide it there under a rock that I will show you. Now, at this point, I think if I were Jeremiah, I would have objected a little bit. Uh, I would have said, Lord, is this negotiable? How about the Jordan River? That's only 25 miles from here. Euphrates, Lord, that's 250 miles. That's a long walk, Lord. Can't, Can't we do it at Jordan? And so Jeremiah went the 250 miles to the Euphrates River and there he put this robe under a rock. Came back to Jerusalem. Actually, he was gone for Jerusalem, from Jerusalem for a, quite a period of time according to the scripture. And then the Lord said, now go back to the river Euphrates and get that robe from under the rock where you placed it. All the way back, 250 miles, 500 miles round trip, to get this sash where he had put it under the rock. Now, you can imagine, uh, by this time, the bugs had probably eaten holes in it, and uh, the colors had all run. In fact, the material was probably so rotten it was just pulling apart. And the Lord said, Now, Go ahead and wear that again through Jerusalem. And as you do, I want you to preach this sermon to the people. 
So it was going to be an illustrated sermon that he was going to preach to the people. And in verse 11, the Lord tells Jeremiah what he's to say. You're to say to the people, for as this sash cleaves to the loins of a man, so I have caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. As, as the sash is tied around, bound tightly around, and um, cleaves to the loins of a man. Now, let me just uh, digress for a moment because there is a scripture that maybe has puzzled you in times past or a phrase in the scripture which talks about girding up your loins. Now, it has to do with the sash. These robes that they wore were, were long robes down to their ankles. Now, it would be awfully hard to run in a robe like that. Uh, it would be difficult to work in a robe like that. So when a guy was going to go to work, he would pull his robe up and tie the sash again so that it would be about knee length, and that way you can run, you can work, you can move about freely, and that is what girding up your loins is. Uh, it's getting ready to go to work or getting ready to enter into a conflict or or to run or whatever. So the Bible speaks about girding up your loins, and that means uh, tie your robe up with your sash higher uh, so that your robe is now kneeling. So he is now wearing this rotten, holy old sash through the streets of Jerusalem again. And as he does... He says to the people, as a sash cleaves to the loins of a man, man is bound by it. So have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah. In other words, God is saying to the people, there was a time when this nation was bound up in God. This nation was tight with God. This nation was close to God. But it was bound up in the Lord and in the things of the Lord. As Even as a sash is bound around a man, so was the nation bound around God. It, it, it was just tight with God. That they might be known as God's people. That they might be to me, God said, a people. And thus, the nation was known as the people of God. Even as the United States was once known as a Christian nation. Now, God was wanting to show to the world, through the nation of Israel... How blessed a nation is whose God is Jehovah. He wanted to bless that nation. He wanted to prosper that nation. He wanted to just do for them so many things so that the world could see the advantages of having 
your God, the true and the living God, Jehovah. And so the nation was blessed abundantly by God as they were cleaving unto God, as they held on to God, as they were close to God. God wanted them to be for a name. Now the name Israel was not a name that uh, the parents gave to a child when he was born. Most children are named at birth. And in the Bible, they were so often named after the circumstances of their birth. When uh, Rachel was, uh, was giving birth to her last son, it was a very difficult labor. In fact, she died in childbirth. And as uh, the son was born, she was expiring, and she called his name Benoni, child of my sorrow. But Jacob was gracious, so he thought that's a terrible tag to put on a little guy. Uh, so he called him Benjamin instead, son of my right hand. But uh, son of sorrow. Uh, because she had such a terrible time with the um, pregnancy and with the uh, labor. Uh, when the twins were born, Esau and Jacob, the first of the twins that came out was it had lots of hair. And they said, look at all of the hair that little guy has. Call him Harry. And so he got the name Esau, which means Harry. When his brother was born, the twin, when he came out, he, he reached out with his little hand and caught his brother's heel. And they said, look at that. Isn't that cute? He got hold of his brother's heel. And call him heel catcher, Yaakov. And so he picked up this name, Yaakov, heel catcher, which came to mean surplanter because it is one who overcomes another by tripping him up. Tripping his heel, he overcomes him. And so the name Jacob or Yaakov uh, came to mean surplanter, but literally it is just a heel catcher. And so they would name the children after the circumstances of their birth. But Israel was not named by his parents, Israel. In fact, his parents named him heel catcher, Yaakov. Years later... This Jacob had an encounter with God. And in, in this encounter, he was crippled. And as the angel of the Lord was getting ready to leave, he clung on to him and he said, Don't leave me without blessing me. He was in big trouble. He had just left his father-in-law and it was heavy duty. There was a big argument, big fight, and they drew a line. And his father-in-law says, don't you dare cross back over this line or you're going to meet, you know, me and your brothers-in-law. And he just got word that his brother Esau, that he had ripped off 17 years earlier, was coming with a party of 200 men to meet him. Now, that wasn't a welcoming party. And, and, and he was in, he, he's afraid to go forward because his brother's there with this group of men and he can't go back because the old man drew a line and said, don't come over this line. So, so he was, 
praying and the angel of the Lord wrestled with him and he's in trouble. The angels now touched him and, he, and the, the muscle there had shriveled and he's, he's limping, he's crippled. And, and so he's holding on to the angel and he's crying and he's saying, please don't go without blessing me. And the angel said, well, what is your name? And he says, he'll catch her. Which could be also interpreted dirty, rotten, sneaky thief. <laughs> and he said, your name will no longer be heel catcher, but your name will now be Israel, ruled by God. That place in his life where he no longer was to get by in his own wits, but now his life was to be governed or ruled by God. And so it's a beautiful name. And thus the name was given to the nation, Israel. And they were to be a special nation, a nation that was ruled by God. They were to be a theocracy. Most of the nations at that time were monarchies, kingdoms. And they had earthly kings that reigned over them but Israel was to be a special nation. They were to be for God's people and they were to be for God's name. Ruled by God. And the name would indicate the relationship of the nation to God. And then they were to be for a praise. A parent often receives praise for the accomplishment of their children. Uh, the other day on television, after Judge Thomas was confirmed, uh, they had his mother on TV. And, and she was a beautiful person to watch. She was just... Uh, they were saying, oh, isn't it, it's so wonderful, you know, your son, you know, is Supreme Court uh, justice now. And, and she was saying, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I knew my son, you know, was innocent. Praise the Lord, you know. And it was, it was beautiful. She was just praising the Lord. But uh, they, were, they were praising her for the accomplishments of her son. And so often the parents do receive praise for the accomplishments of their children. And God was wanting to receive praise through the accomplishment of His people. Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they will glorify your Father which is in heaven. And that's what it's all about. The Lord wants you to live in such a way that as people see your life, they praise the Lord. They say, oh, isn't God wonderful? Did you see that? They're Christians, you know. And, and isn't, that, isn't that beautiful? Oh, the Lord is, you know, and they, God wants praise through you, through your life. He wants to receive praise. Through the nation of Israel, God was wanting people to praise Him and to honor Him. Now, some people's lives 
bring praise to God and there are others whose lives bring a reproach to God. I think of the sad reproach that Jimmy Swaggart has brought to the ministry and to Christianity. And my heart grieves. We need to pray for that man rather than condemning him. The man obviously has some serious problems and and we need to pray for him. But it's sad that the world now, uh, all of the comedians and everybody's making so much fun of of him and of Christianity because of what he has done. And and, and that's, that's sad. And a child can bring shame and reproach to their parents. And I wonder many times, Does my life bring real praise to God or are there times when God is sort of ashamed of me? Uh, He sort of says, whose son is that, you know? (laughs) I used to do that when my kids would, you know, be rowdy and noisy in a restaurant and all and and running around, I'd say, why don't the parents control those kids, you know? (laughs) I didn't want people to know they were mine. (laughs) God wanted the nation to be for a glory, he says. How God glories in his people. Paul uses a phrase again and again in Ephesians chapter 1, to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is what it's all about. God just wants to receive glory in his people, from his people. I glory in my children and in my grandchildren. I love to share the cute little things that my grandchildren do. At the present time, I have a little two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. I have 17 grandkids. It's a little difficult to keep up with them all, but it's fun. But my little two-and-a-half-year-old, well, she'll be two-and-a-half uh, next month, sharp, verbal little kid. She's a beautiful little gal and just very verbal. And uh, the other night, um, my daughter and son-in-law were sitting in the family room, and she was in the kitchen, and my daughter said to Brian, It sounds like she's in my purse. She likes to go through her mama's purse and get out the lipstick and the whole bit, you know. And She thinks that she's as big as anybody. And so Brian called in and he said, Kelsey, are you in mama's purse? And she sort of giggled and said, No, daddy, I'm not in her purse. Only my hands are. He was talking last Thursday about having to go up to Costa Mesa. Mesa. She said, Daddy, are you going to Costa Mesa? And he says, yes, I have to go up there. And she said, I want to go with you. I want to see Grandpa. And uh, so he brought her on up. And between appointments, uh, I had a 
little time with her to tell her how beautiful she was and to kiss her and, and to talk to her a bit. And so when she got home, her mama said, um, well, honey, did you see Grandpa? And she said, yes. And she said, well, um, uh, what did Grandpa say? And she said, oh, he said I was beautiful. And she said, well, did Grandpa kiss you? And she said, yes. And she said, well, where did Grandpa kiss you? And she, expecting to say on the cheek, she said, in Costa Mesa. <laughs> As I was bringing her out of Toys R Us the other day, uh, she looked up at me holding her dolls and said, you're the best grandpa in the whole world. <laughs> I'll tell you, I gloried. I, just, I glory in that. I glory in the fact that all of my children, all four of them, are actively serving the Lord. Now, if one of my sons were in prison tonight for rape or murder, I, I wouldn't very well glory in that. I, I would, I would, I would, um, I would be ashamed. It would bring, it would bring pain to me rather than glory. As a child of God, I wonder: Do you bring pain to the heart of God? Or does your life bring glory to God? The nation of Israel was once tight with God. They were all bound up in God. And as such, God blessed the nation. And they were for a praise and a glory and a name unto God. They were His people and known as His people. But things are different now in Jeremiah's day. Israel was once beautiful. It was once close and tight with God. But in verse 10, Jeremiah said, or the Lord said to Jeremiah, This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart, and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them shall be even as this sash, which is good for nothing. When he dug this sash out from under the rock, of course it was all the filthier, the material was rotted, uh, and, and it had the holes in it. It, it, was, just, it was just ugly. And you know, when, when, a, when a garment gets to the place where it has holes in it, that's, that's usually the time to discard it. Uh, my wife looks at my closet and she says, Honey, you've got a lot of clothes in there that are good for nothing. You ought to get rid of them. Go through your closet now and get rid of those things. Well, they aren't good for nothing. I look at those dirty old pants and I think the next time I'm working on my car, uh, I can wear those pants. Yeah, they've, you know, got grease stains all over them, but 
you know, that they're good. I don't want to wear a nice pair of pants to work on my car. So there's some value there. And the same with my greasy shirts. Uh, they're, they're clean. They've been through the washing machine, but, you know, they've got all these stains. But yet, you know, they're great for grubbing around. And, and so uh, I can still see some value in them. Uh, I've had a um, sweater that someone gave me years ago. Um, really sharp, sharp all wool sweater, and 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 I've worn that thing. It, it, well, I've had it so long; it's just like a member of the family almost. And it's been close to me, and uh, I I like that sweater. And um, my wife the other day said, "Honey, you ought to get rid of that sweater. You've had it so long, and." Uh, the, the color looks faded now and it's out of shape. And I said, well, honey, you don't get rid of something just because it's out of shape. Look at me. I mean, uh, I don't like to get rid of things just because they're out of shape. Uh, but I pulled it out of the closet the other day. I was going to wear it again. Uh, but this past uh, year, some moths or something got to the thing and there were two or three holes in it in the front. And so reluctantly, I, it was good for nothing. Now, I, can't, I, I won't wear it with holes in it. So I, I threw it away to her uh, delight. Uh, <laughs> but this, this sash, it, the Bible says it was marred. It was profitable for nothing. And now the Lord is declaring of it that it is good. For nothing. Now, that's the message to these people. They were evil people who refused now to hear the word of God. In fact, they were holding the word of God up to ridicule. They were mocking Jeremiah, the prophet of God. In fact, in his hometown, Anathoth, some men came to him and said, Look, boy, We're tired of you telling us the Lord says. We don't want to hear that anymore. We don't want to hear you anymore. And if you come around once more saying the Lord saith, we're going to kill you. Why should you die at our hands? They were actually threatening to put him to death because he was speaking in the name of the Lord. These evil people, God said, will not hear my words. Jeremiah was continually warning them to put away their idols, to turn back to God, or they would be judged as God would bring the Babylonians against them to destroy them and to take away their nation. But they refused to hear the warnings of God. For they were walking in the imagination of their own hearts. That is... They were seeking to live, to live out the fantasies of their own minds. Now, in the Bible, I think there's 14 places where it talks about the imagination of man's hearts. And in every place, it's in an evil sense, the wicked imaginations. In fact, uh, Jeremiah eight times mentions the wicked imaginations of the people. Uh, You remember when God destroyed the world in the days of Noah. 
we read that the wickedness of man was great for every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and it precipitated that tremendous flood because of the wicked imaginations and people trying to live out these fantasies that were in their minds. It brings up the subject of sowing and reaping. Now, we're all aware of the law of nature concerning sowing and reaping. We know that whatever you sow, that you also will reap. If you want to raise a wheat crop, you don't go out and spread a bunch of uh, cucumber seeds because you know that cucumber seeds are going to produce cucumbers. And, and you, you reap in kind. And it's a law of nature, and we're all aware of that law of nature. But what we aren't all aware of is that that law also is true in a spiritual sense, not just in a uh, sense of... of, of um, the natural realm or the natural world, but it's true also in the spiritual sense. What you sow, you're going to reap, the Bible tells us. And if you are sowing into your mind filth, X-rated, R-rated videos, movies, pornography, filth, then that's what's going to begin to occupy the imagination of your heart. It's going to be filthy. Because whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. And if you sow to the flesh, of the flesh you're going to reap corruption. This robe became corrupt, or this girdle became corrupt. It was rotten. And if you are sowing that kind of stuff, Israel was the, the imagination of their hearts, evil, wicked, turned from God, because they had gotten into pornography. They had begun to worship Ashtoreth and Molech, the gods of sex and pleasure. And, and uh, with Ashtoreth, it was a form of pornography. The little idols were pornographic. And, and that began to fill their minds and their imaginations. And so God says of this people who were once close to God, they were once tight with God, they were once bound up in God like a sash, tight around. Now they're rotten. They're good for nothing because they won't listen to the voice of God. And they are walking now after the imagination of their heart. It's one thing to think it, but then it's another thing to try to fulfill it. And that's usually what follows. Trying to actualize the fantasies. Walking after the imagination of their hearts. And then they walked after other gods to serve them and to worship them. They had other desires and other loves that exceeded their love for God. They were being ruled now by their own passions. They were being ruled by their intellects, but not by God. 
their passions, their desires for pleasure, their intellects became their gods. They had begun to live for the God of pleasure. You know, it is an interesting thing. They were, they were close to earth, close to reality, close to life. Living as we do in, in a sophisticated kind of a culture, we're not really in touch with reality many times. And especially in the thought of, of the God that you worship and the God that you serve. Now, these people, when they lived for partying, I mean, that was their life. Man, I'm just a party hound, you know. I just love partying. And, and, and you live for party. They, they would say, well, I worship Bacchus. He was the party god. And, uh, and they, would, they would acknowledge it. They'd have their little idol, you know. And, and that's my god. I'm, I'm a party Man, I love parties, you know, and I live for parties. And, and so they would recognize that that is actually having a God. That you are worshiping, you're serving that God. If a person's thing was sex and, and they, they live for sexual pleasures and all, they would say, well, I worship Ashtoreth. And they would have their little goddess. And they would acknowledge, hey, sex my thing, man. I live for it. Or if uh, they were worshiping a power and they wanted possessions, then they had their little god uh, of uh, mammon and, and they would pray to this little idol and they'd ask this little idol to help them to gain power and all. And, and, and they would say, well, uh, I worship mammon. Today you say, well, I'm a workaholic. You know, I want to get ahead. Well, face it, man, you're worshiping mammon. I'm a party animal. Well, face it, man, you're worshiping Bacchus. And, and that's, that's the truth of the matter. These are the things that are the master passions of your life. These are the things that really control what you do and when you do it and, and the whole thing. I mean, you, you live by the rules of your gods. And whatever is a person's master passion, ideal, that has become their God. And so the Lord acknowledges of them that they had turned to other gods and they were walking after them to serve them and to worship them. And thus, they were like Jeremiah's sash, marred and rotten. No longer a thing of beauty. No longer a delight and a joy. For they were no longer bound up in God. Their lives had now become marred and wasted. And God's estimate of them was that they were good for nothing. No longer fulfilling the purposes for which God once established them and wanted them to be his people. 
that he might receive glory and praise through their lives. When something becomes good for nothing, as we said earlier, it's time to get rid of it. And even the sash that once bound the prophet was buried in the rock by the river Euphrates. So the nation, and now we understand why the river Euphrates. Had you argued with God earlier, now you would understand why. Why the river Euphrates for this girdle be buried? Because that's where the nation was going to be buried, the sash. Once beautiful, once a thing of delight and glory for God, but it's going to be buried in Babylon. And there it's going to become marred and rotten and good for nothing. This once glorious nation, these people who were once the people of God and, and the world looked at them and stood in awe of the power and the glory of the nation whose God was Jehovah, and now carried away to Babylon as slaves to be ruined, to go into oblivion for 70 years. There's one other place in the Bible where the phrase good for nothing is used. That's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and it's used by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said... To his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of man. Savorless salt, according to Jesus, is good for nothing. The church is to be savory salt in the world. We should bring a tang and a zest to life in a rather flat and insipid world. We're to make the world thirsty. Salt makes a person thirsty. But in those days, among other things, salt was used as a preservative. Without refrigeration, when you would butcher meat, it would rotten very quickly because of the bacteria. So what they would do is salt down the meat. And the salt would kill the bacteria and thus it would preserve the meat. And so when Jesus said, ye are the salt of the earth, the disciples understood that as as a preservative as well as something that made life something other than flat and insipid to give taste to life. They knew that it also meant a preservative. You are to be the preserving influence in the society. Israel was to be a preserving influence within the world. They were to bring the light of God to the world. But instead they have become like the world. And unfortunately, in so many places, the the church has lost its savor. It's become like the world. It's participating in the things of the world. It is no longer that saving influence in the world, but it's actually fallen into the corruption of the world. And as such is no longer savory to the world. And as such becomes good for nothing. 
but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of man. Does your relationship with Jesus Christ still excite you? (laughs) Does it still turn the taste buds zinging? Or has your relationship with Jesus become rather flat and insipid like savorless salt? Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, Oh, you've got a lot of things going, but I've got this against you. You've left your first love. It's just not there anymore. You've got motions. You've got activity. You're going through the motions, but you don't have the emotion. That love. And and he said, unless you repent and and go back to your first works, I'm going to move the candlestick out of its place. What's that all about? Back in chapter 1. John saw the the seven golden candlesticks and Christ was walking in the midst of it. And and so Christ is saying, I'm going to leave. The candlestick will be moved out of its place. That is the presence of Christ walking in the midst of his church. And in so much of the church today, it's a Christless church. It's empty of the Christ whom we acknowledge. It's become flat. It's become insipid. It's not salty anymore. And thence it has become good for nothing. And in so many places of the world, we see where it's been cast out and trodden under the foot of man. That you might be to a praise and a glory unto God. The question is, is your life bringing praise to God, glory to God? Does does God look down when he sees you? Ah, that's my boy. Look at that. That's my son. Or does your life bring shame unto God? A reproach to the name of Jesus. That was the case of Israel. They had become like Jeremiah's sash. A sash that had become marred, filthy, rotten. And so God said to the nation, this is the way you look to me. You're good for nothing. I'll bury you in Babylon. Shall we pray? Father, let our hearts be open now to the voice of your Holy Spirit, even as you spoke to Jeremiah. Speak to us tonight, Lord. But help us that we would not be as the children of Israel and not hear your voice or hear your word. Lord, may we give heed to what the Spirit would be saying to his church tonight. And Lord, let our lives be bound up in you. Lord, let our relationship with you be tight. Oh, Lord, we pray that you will just really Draw us unto yourself and let us be glory and praise unto you, Lord, by our life of commitment, our life of devotion, our life of trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray.